Hello and welcome to the 21st episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Sunday the 18th of August 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we continue with Chapter 7, the Workers' Government Slogan, and talk inevitably leads to the philosophical and sociological world of toilets. The Patreon commie badges have finally been finished and are sitting right in front of me here at my desk, all packaged up and ready for posting. If you are due one, please check your Patreon account messages and let me know which design you'd like. If you'd like to get your hands on one of these beauties, you'll have to betray your proletarian Patreon tier and join us up here in middle management. The perks are exceptional. If you'd like to help out the show, head over to Patreon where you can join the Patreon gang gang for as little as $5 a month, which works out at only $1 an episode. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. Make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Let, let's let's go along here and do thesis nine. The working class does not only need the Communist Party before and during the conquest of power, but also after the transfer of power into the hands of the working class. The history of the Communist Party of Russia, which has been in power for almost three years now, shows that the importance of the <laughs> Communist Party does not diminish after the conquest of power by the working class, but on the contrary, grows extraordinarily. However, the political ground for these claims is the argument for the vanguard character of the party, theses one to three. And a critical conclusion drawn is the need for strict Bonapartist centralism, iron military order in party organisation, theses 13 to 17. I discussed both of these in chapter five and identified how they can serve to destroy the character of the party as one through which the proletariat can rule. In fact, both arguments are wholly unnecessary to the proposition that political power can only be seized, organised and led by a political party. This proposition follows merely from the original argument of the Marxists against the Bakuninists and opponents of working class participation in elections. If the working class is to take power, it must lead the society as a whole. To do so, it must address all questions animating politics in the society as a whole and all its elements. To do so is become a political party, even when you call yourself an alliance or unity coalition or whatever, or a trade union, as the smaller revived industrial workers of the world group calls itself. To fail to do so is to fail even as an alliance or unity coalition. I'd like to just say something before you boys get deep into it. Like I'm reading that what book. About me? Um, sorry, uh, I mean it in a non-gender specific way. <laughs> you people. It is in Ireland. We say boys for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So um, and lads the same. Girls call each other lads. It's a bit weird. But um, yeah, yeah, um, girls call each other dude out here. You know the same kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is weird. Like, cause men don't call each other like girl. I mean, girl. gay dudes do. Yeah, that's supposed to do. But yeah. Anyway, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, I'm reading that book by Gary Teeple about like Marx's history of our theory of of critique of politics. And in it, Marx talks a lot about this idea of civil life versus political life. And all the way through it, he's talking about, like, you know, getting things dialectically unified or whatever. 
And it would seem to me, I am probably being very imprecise with my language, but it, it, like, it seems to me like a very, very deep point of Marx is that you need both civil society to organize itself for communism and you need to get the political element of society to do it too. And I just think like that to, that to me is like why Marx is going so hell for leather against Bakunin for this idea of a political party. And it's why I think it's correct we should go for the party, even if we're going to run into a whole load of shit problems trying to figure out how to do it. I just thought I'd throw that in there before you three start going in about these theses. Okay, yeah. so let yeah. your Derek jump in. Well, I, I just want to bring out how much conflation is going on here and how I, I think this is pretty emblematic of talking about party across texts because so the Bolsheviks are talking about the Leninist party, like the Bolshevized party form. McNair in general has been talking about a Kautskyan party, which is right. an abstraction from the second international and Marx, you know, it is talking about this broader form of party and the definition that he uses towards the end implicitly when he's talking about to do so is to become a political party, even if you call yourself something else. That is a more Marxian kind of definition of party. But it's amazing that's, that's how little Marx different notions. It is true, but when you read Marx, it is amazing how little Marx talks about political party. It comes up, what, three times? Maybe. Most of which in the Brumaire. That's really and, it. Well, McNair is like aware of the difference between... Marx's definition of party and even like what the later angles recognizes as a party because he's dealing with the SPD so much. I think McNair it does realize these differences, but he's not like, I, I honestly think this, he, he's not pointing out how until that very last paragraph, how different these are. And then he says, well, you don't have to, thesis one through three are not, are not dependent on thesis 13 to 17 as, as he's already shown. Oh, okay. I get it. Except that for the Bolsheviks, they meant in thesis one through three, what was meant in thesis 13 through 17. So he's having to decontextually read this to make those three theses hold up. Yeah. I think, I think he, he's not happy about the justificatory theses and then has sympathy essentially for five and seven, or I'm sorry, what was it? Five and nine. Yeah. Five, five and nine. And then he says one, one, three are valid. And then he brackets out five, five and nine and this gets to 13 and 17 and says that they're basically not just not just not true that they actually set things backwards they're inimical to, to proletarian rule like those justifications are like but negate the class content of the party you and i have been talking about though how it's hard to figure out why so many people who read this come to such weird ass conclusions they do yeah it's making more sense now reading this book yeah, because because trying to figure out what McNair means by party, even if you're being pretty strict delineating what he's saying, is not easy. Because you could read this and say, oh, he thinks the Leninist party form is fine. Yeah, which is not what he means, but... It just needs he... to be more internally democratic or whatever. Right. I mean, like, but like, is that not a contradiction in terms? Or like, how can you be an iron strict rule but be more democratic or... Like, is he just I don't know, allowed, but I know a lot of people who believe it right now. <laughs> are, they, are they literally just saying you allow factions? Is that kind of what they mean? Yeah, I think that's what they but mean. Like, yeah. Well, like, is that not just, like, but, you know. Like, a lot of them still believe in, like, open ballot vote and, uh, and stuff, too. So I'm like, oh, so factions, but factions that can be subordinated to the will, whatever dominant group is there. Yeah, like, it has to be 
that idea of open voting is very bad. I, I, on I, only I, trivial, on only trivial things, you know. Yeah, you know, you know what? Weirdly, uh, Tom Alexi, I think I'm actually being convinced that Cockshot's critique of this has some teeth. Oh, I think it has. I, I think I think sortition is a. I think that's you know it's eminently a scientific approach, if anything, uh, you know, for how to actually reflect working class behavior or just everybody's behavior. Like I think it might have you know difficulties and how it's implemented, or maybe it's you need to selectively implement it. You know, some things might be very difficult to to do that way. But I, I do think that general approach is correct. You know, I even like before I read Marx or anything and the 2008 happened and I had all these kind of wacky radical ideas in my own head and thought, oh, I'm a feckin' genius. And then realized, you know, they were invented 200 years ago in much better form with a lot of theory. <laughs> is like I had an idea for like a kind of a sampling of populations for, for votes and stuff. You know, it's a very fucking obvious thing to somebody who's kind of with a math background, I think. It's no kind of coincidence that it's coming from someone like Cockshot. Yeah, as opposed to a, a narrative histor- a historian like uh, McNair. Yeah, completely. And, you know, this narrative historian who sees this this major character and this and could they have chosen a different way? And it's like, you know, God damn it, let's take a statistical and mechanical approach to, to governance. That's what I kind of don't like about this book is that he kind of just gives way too much causal explanation to political organization explain what you mean there like he kind of just explains all of history in terms of like the political organization and like why history the turned out the way it did because of like these political decisions that these people made it is a very voluntarist voluntarist politically determinist reading of history right like yeah that's, that's kind of what i don't like about this book is how like yeah, it's like how like politically deterministic and voluntaristic it is. Well, well, I understand that critique, and I think Marxists should you know do well to have a broader read of the forces. I think you could tell this story in terms of like broader things outside of the wills of people. But the important thing about history is that at least it is experienced as actors acting, you know, <laughs> and. Like- I, I could tell a story about the productive forces in Russia and how that was going to bind all the choice there. But like, you know, not everything is explained by that. Like there could have been a more democratic response to the failure of workers' councils. There's no economic law that determines that. Well, this oh, but is I why think... y'all motherfuckers need dialectics. That's all I got But say. I feel like... Is every book, is every history book not written? Like even Marxist ones, like it's Marx's ones on like the Brumaire, are they not like written as well with choices and stuff in there? Yeah, but they, they, they are, are, but capitalism. This is a historical work, really, isn't it? Like, no, you're just no. gonna, you can't get away from it and just like say, oh, well, there was 27% peasantry yeah. at this point. You know, I don't think well, but... you have to combine <laughs> It is a historical work, but it's also a historiographic work, and that's where things get a little bit more questionable. Because it it does it's it does seem like McNair's trying to move this away from the idea that you know like oh Stalin bad mustache man, you know I kind of want like a probabilistic view of history you know I kind of want it to be like <laughs> the you know I kind of like to think of history like we have these conditions and these are like a field you know like an electric field or something 
Yeah. So yeah. you so you want Bainesian yeah. Marxism? Yeah, you I want, want like. <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> we got we got to we got to read Alan Carling. Yeah. yeah. I, I I kind of want like you know their conditions are like this field and then you know like think of it's an electric field or something and like based on the voltage across the field or whatever then we have a certain probability of something happening you know something like that but you know in, in history historical terms yeah right. i mean because what yeah. what what if the bolsheviks had done the right thing and it still failed <laughs> I, I want like somebody to go through like the empirical data that you know maybe the economic conditions and you know the political conditions that correspond to these and you know this book isn't really giving me that but you know, I think he's correct in a certain way. You know, I'm sure that these party organizations that he's talking about would have been, you know, more conducive to accomplishing world revolution. But I'm not sure if, like, like I know I want to I want somebody to explain why this didn't happen. Yeah, and, and you I, know, I, like, I, what kind of conditions are make the revolution probable in, like, you know, in, in like the world system or whatever. Yeah, Marx tended to talk more about forces and relations of production in his political explanations and like the broader like class compositions in his political explanations. McNair is zeroing in on one level of analysis. I know for a fact that McNair also thinks in these broader ways and his work more generally is characterized by a pretty deep engagement with class composition and you know, forces and relations of production, but also he does take, you know, legal forms and that sort of thing to be important. So I think like outside of this book, you'll find that he has more, more explanatory things to say about that stuff, but he's just abstracting a lot of that away because of how, how disastrous the role of agency in the third international really, you know, like was like there in a way he's making an argument that there was a big mistake here and it wasn't yeah. necessitated by, you know, the big Marxist forces that we usually appeal to. I, well, I think the other thing that we have to deal with is you mentioned bound choice theory, but bound choice theory does indicate there are choices. And I'll give McNear this. He does try to read these choices as bad responses to legitimate things that have happened and not as purely will. So I mean, even in this little chapter, you know, you have this whole explanation of like, well, the Soviets totally fucked up because they didn't think about the structure of the Soviet comp. They had to institute an institutionalized military and respond to that and maintain power. The Bolsheviks had to militarize their own ranks. That like once you have made that mistake, there really are only certain things you can do. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, like when I interviewed him, like he, you know, he was talking about, you know, say about today's politics he was talking about how there's like a kind of a there's a bifurcation of kind of political choices you know you got the you know the kind of turn to right-wing nationalism and you got the Corbyn or Sanders movement and you had these two things that the state of the economy and political life are are pushing these two alternatives and it's like you know it's up for grabs you know and I, I think I think when you get into this talking about like Lenin and the Bolsheviks and all that you know, you get trot. I don't want to say just trot. Like Stalinist trot. You get a lot of people on, and they think every they will have a justification for why everything ended up the way it did, and that's how it should have. And he's fighting back against that. And I think that's where the book comes from. I agree. I just, I just want to, I want to justify Puya's slight 
you know, descent here, and that it would be nice to have some of this stated in probabilistic terms as opposed to absolute ones. Uh, yeah, or maybe not like this should happen or this shouldn't happen. You know, like this did happen, and I, I know what Lexi said. I understand what he's doing, but it's kind of you know, I don't, I, I don't really think that it's an accurate way to like model history. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's like it's like good science. Yeah, I just well, I, the thing is that I don't know that this is supposed. This is trying to be good science. I know I sound like I'm talking out of both ends of my mouth on this one, but I actually see both sides. But it's frustrating to me because I see oh. how you could go ahead, Tom. Sorry, I was just going to say both ends of your ass. That's what yeah, I, that's yeah. fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, it's frustrating to me because because if I take the politically determinist reading of this, which is easy to take, I can come up with some pretty messed up conclusions. Well, I mean, I could basically just say all we need is party discipline with factions as opposed to not factions, and we don't need to militarize it so much, but it's still a vanguard party, and it's really ideology that's going to cause it to win. Yeah, I kind of had got that vibe from this book just a little bit. Right, and I'm like, th- some of the problems aren't just ideological, and I, to be fair, I read enough of McNair's articles on the Weekly Worker to know that he actually gets that, but that's not in this book. Right. Right, right. Uh, this is McNair intervening among Marxists that are just not going to actually change their mind about that kind of thing. He right. only really deals with Stalinism. Like, up, up front, he does say a couple things explicitly, and then, you know, says, drops the bomb about Bonapartism. For the most part, you could be an anti-revisionist and read this book and be like, okay. Okay. So I mean, I've actually noticed this whole tendency after people have been exposed to this book, and it's not just amongst people we know to be like, well, why don't you hate? Why do you hate the techies? You know, more than you hate capitalists and stuff. Like, we need to have some kind of objective unity against the right wing of socialism and and capital. And I'm like, what? How did you read this and get this out of this? But I think you can. I think I think I don't think that's what he's saying, but I don't think it's excluded either. I think Kyle just rolled in. Hey, Kyle. Kyle. This is Kyle from General Intellect Unit. Everybody. Kyle. Hey, what's up? Well, you've just missed a whole lot of talking about toilets. Of a good half hour on communist toilets. <laughs> oh, I didn't. I didn't realize we were reading Zizek. <laughs> oh, are you saying because he's he's crap? <laughs> no, he's got that famous. Get about uh, the how like the different toilets in different European countries like represent some truth about ideology. <laughs> I, I think oh, I actually I actually was okay. I think he's right. Um, oh dear God! You think right, Tom? Uh, yeah. Has you any used been to Germany at all? Yeah. Yes, I have. I lived there for a couple. Unfortunately, weeks. not yet. Germans have the worst toilets in the world. They they <laughs> have they a they. You go for a shit, right? And they have like a, a flat bit where your shit lies and it's not underwater. It's up. And so like Ooh. you go for a shit, it stinks the place out. You can't sit there and read or anything. You have to get the fuck out of there. So it's the Germans, they can inspect their shit after they do it. Before they this, is, it. this is exactly what Zizek was talking about. He's, you Man, know. Man, they're the worst toilets in the goddamn world. It's fucking rancid. <laughs> you do a shit, you gotta get out of there immediately. It's who who pokes their their shit with a stick? My God! <laughs> well, you gotta see your bowel health, Tom. You gotta you gotta make sure it's all good. Wow! I was I was about German engineering. 
I will spare you the talk of where of places I've visited in Southeast Asia where it was just a pit. That's better. Ditch. That's better than us. Well, it the was a wooden ditch built over a pig pit. Yeah, I much prefer that than a German toilet. Uh, you have to you watch out for the pigs. That after a while, the wooden the outhouses that you squat and they don't have running water. Those are awful. <laughs> Because at least the Germans, they, they lull you into this sense of fucking cleanliness and everything. And the next thing, you're sitting in the middle of a goddamn pile of your own shit. I, I um, do remember sorry. this about German toilets, but I was not as traumatized by it as you, apparently. Uh. Tom, I, I promise I'll remember when I visit Germany. I'll think about, I'll think about your feelings about this. I'm going to get a I'm... picture of a German toilet. Here we go. <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. Yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad I introduced this derail into an already toilet focused conversation. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I appreciate it. Look at that. Ah, this is ah, ah, God, God. Look at this. Tom, Tom. We have to talk about the third about. international, Tom. I'm keeping my mind at the more holy thing. I think we need to turn the page. It's just, uh, it's just a bit much. Party states be... everywhere, Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This might be a metaphor okay. for the party state. Let's move on. This is the country that gave us the SPD, so, you know. Now, let's go. Who, well, Kyle, we're going to do a bit of reading of this. Can you see the screen wherever you are? I can, yes. The converse of these points is that in the transition to capitalist modernity, every state becomes, in a certain sense, a party state. A critical difference between the successful dynastic absolutists in much of continental Europe and the failed Stuart absolutists is that the Bourbon, Habsburg, and Hohenzollern absolutists made themselves prisoners of a party. The party which was to emerge, largely bereft of its state as the party of order in the 19th century Europe. The Stuarts, following an older statecraft, avoided becoming prisoners of a party. James I, Charles I, Charles II, and James II all endeavored to maneuver between the Anglican Episcopal variant of the party of order, outright Catholics, and Calvinist critics of Anglican Episcopalianism in order to preserve their freedom of action as monarchs. This policy of preserving the individual monarch's personal freedom of action destroyed the political basis necessary to preserve the dynastic regime. The result was a new sort of party state, the revolution state created in Britain in 1688 to 1714. This state was politically based on a block of Whigs and revolution, Williamite and later Hanoverian Tories, the Jacobites who clung to the Stuart dynasty and the Catholics were excluded from political power and episodically repressed. In the American revolution, Similarly, what was created was a Whig party state. The Whigs differentiated into Federalists and Democratic Republicans, but outright Tories were largely driven out of the society. The dialectical opposite occurred in Britain in the late 18th to early 19th century, 
Classical Whigism was largely marginalized and the state became, as it is today, a Hanoverian Tory party state, successively dominated by liberal Tory and conservative Tory parties, and since 1945, by conservative Tories and labor Tories. <laughs> Does anybody want to explain what Whiggism is for people who don't know? I guess the easiest way to explain it, it's just like the classical liberal enlightenment party. How does it relate to like uh, Jacobin like re revolutionism though? My my history on these sorts of things are a bit rusty. But what's uh, interesting to me is that he's clearly using a pre-Kautskyan form of party when he's talking about a revolutionary party state in the late 1600s. Yeah, but yeah. he also he leaves party here sounds like he means ideal an ideological formation. It, like, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I don't think that Marx would ever characterize it as an ideological formation. That's but, uh, but that's I, what the party of order is, though. That's an ideological formation. That's not anything else. Otherwise, that statement's not true. Well, I mean, is that even true, though? Because the party of order is like a very sort of polyglot kind of formation, right? Like, it's, it's various groups who come together as the party of order. They may have separate ideologies uh, between them. Like, how? How? how okay. You need you got. I, I'm I'm gonna actually put some pressure on this. Define your fucking terms because th like this is. Oh, it's heating up in here tonight. It's heating. Up. <laughs> Welcome to the war zone, Kyle. Welcome to the war zone. <laughs> DMX playing. Yeah, the general intellect usually hasn't been subjected to barn yet, so um, <laughs> only a matter of time. I'm actually really, I, I'm both fascinated by this, but I'm frustrated by what he could mean by party because he says it's to the party of order, which means a coalition, right? It's a coalition of parties in, and the, their function is to maintain order as opposed mm -hmm. to the monarch as its own monarchical position, which was the um, classical, like the late medieval view, both of which are absolutist. So that's the absolutism is under difference. And the difference is the party of order is like the monarchy has subjugated itself as to leadership of this coalition of, of things that want order. Why I say this ideologically though, is that for that to make sense, order has to be defined. Like it's not, it's not just some object. It's not like an, an objective coalition for peace. Like there, there is some sort of ideological core there. And that's also true for like the de facto Whiggish parties removing and then Britain becoming everybody's secretly a Tory, whether they admit it or not. They're just labor Tories and conservative Tories. Could you define what you mean by ideological there? Ideological here does not mean I'm not playing any like Octusarian language games. What I mean is basically there is an idea of some there's some kind of overarching idea, a singular idea. I don't mean a platform that's holding all this together. That is an ideological formation. I'm, I'm just thinking here about, like, I may be thinking of the wrong example of the party of order, uh, but I'm thinking about the way that Marx defines the party of order in the 18th Brumaire. Right. And it is, it is really a kind of marriage of convenience that various political actors get forced into by the circumstances in that text. And that's why I was saying it's kind of like variated. It's not... There are various ideologies within that, that alliance. Right. Well, I this, think this, that this is the clearly an objection to this reading of history, though, that I think is actually substantive. This is making that idea predominant. Because the reason, quote, the reason why 
the entirety of the Jacobite monarchs failed, including ones that actually ruled, was that they wanted monarchical freedom and thus tried to, to like navigate various religious and class groups without committing to any of them. And I don't see how you, not, how, how do you read that as not politically, like almost solely politically determined? Mm. I don't like if you if you read that without any if you're bracketing all the material limitations out I- even methodologically you just came up to a to- like even if you're just doing it to make a political point the point you're going to have to make there is politically determined to clarify this is the claim that there is a there's an idea form or a preference for a political form that suspends the class content of the state is that what you're getting at there is that a fair reconstruction because i don't i don't know if he's actually doing that are we getting caught up on exactly like kind of the i think what he means by this stuff like it it seems kind of to me largely correct i don't see the problem Um, i i also don't see the problem and i i don't want to fetishize the ideology of the tories you know the tories like the tory political project had a power base and like, that's like the real content of the Tories. It's not like the. But then that statement about abstractly. the Jacobites doesn't hold true. If it's about abstract power power bases and not what these people are trying to do, then. But like, let's look at his idea here of the liberal Tory and conservative Tory, and then the conservative Tory and the Labour Tories today. If you look at both Labour and the Tories in England, are one hundred percent in favour of the state. It's not like the Labour Party is like a revolutionary communist party. Now, are even arguing to get rid of the Queen? They don't even do that. While they both have, they both are fully tied into and well up for the current political status quo as it is. And we just switch, you know, the redistributing a little bit more, a little bit less, whatever, based on which party is in power. But they both are aligned with like, yeah, this state, we support this state. But this and is a political dominant... ideological reading of history. It is. And that's, to me, like... No, but I, I, like I, we're talking about literally how the parties operate today. That's actually... They are in support of it. We're not just, like, saying it's like that because these people support it. it All right. It I, I'm going to ask you to turn off your empirical map brain for a second and what? actually what? use some fucking logic. What, what I'm saying is that... If you read this this way, what he is saying is a determinating factor is a political formation based on a series of ideas. No, I don't think so. You don't don't think so, so, Derek. What was the monarchical freedom argument about? These historical examples are mentioned for a reason. And look at the examples. Oh, they're not. uh, (laughs) Okay, go ahead. I'm (laughs) done. Sorry, here, Derek. Come back. What are you talking about? Like, I don't know so much about the Jacobite stuff, so I can't even talk about it. But I can talk about, oh. say, how the things operated, say, post the Irish Revolution, and talk about how the party formations completely switched, totally changed. But if you want to look at it, the actual the party formations were a function of what went on in the economy and in the material conditions of the people. It's not like people had the idea for these two new parties. They came out of the the struggle, the the economic conditions, and so forth. And I think that's the point he's making. He's not saying like all of a sudden in political life in Ireland there was Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and you know that's just the ideas people had in their head. He's not saying that. I think that's just looking for an argument where I don't think he's trying to make that argument. 
I got kind of lost in your conversation, but I think this might be an important quote is in the first paragraph. A critical difference between the successful dynastic absolutists in much of continental Europe and the failed Stuart absolutists is that the Bourbon, blah, blah, these people, absolutes made themselves prisoners of a party, the party which was to emerge. So I think he's trying to make the claim that they were, you know, they were successful because of their party form. Yeah, did and I, their relation to the party. Did I annoy Derek so much that he left? Yes. I did, I? I believe that's what <laughs> 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 It's an actual thing. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that he uh, he's like totally like wrong to be critical of that way of thinking. But I don't know if McNair is saying that this is purely a matter of ideology. Because what I, I guess what I'm reading underneath yeah. this is that is that the, the party state, the party systems that are emerging have bourgeois class content. And so, yes, the fact that you have conservative Tories and you have labor Tories are for the bourgeois state in a, in a substantive sense. And that's the you know class conversation going on underneath the ideological like, forms. Am, am I reading too much into there, this? There, there's there's too much history being glossed in this section here because like when he's contrasting America to Britain, he's not necessarily saying that the British case excluded a more sort of classically liberal bourgeois movement. The expression of bourgeois interests in America is more like directly, you know, that kind of bourgeois liberal ideology. Whereas in Britain, it's a kind of weird compromise that happens with the existing aristocratic formations. Well, I, I have a question that I'm coming back in now that I've stormed off in a huff. Um, Sorry, Derek. Cool down. Uh, I do. So, Sorry. go ahead. I was just going to say apologies. I didn't mean to piss you off. Even though uh, I kind of feel like this is finally I got him to storm. <laughs> After five years of finally fucking broken brain. You Irish ass. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, I'm going to blame this on national character, just like Marx and Eagles sometimes did. Um, <laughs> That's what he would have wanted. <laughs> I blame him uh, on the good times. Um, <laughs> the, but in all seriousness, I feel like I have to bring, like, the reason why I'm doubling down on this is not because I think this is actually what my narrative thinks, but I think that, like, if you just read what he's saying, that's the most logical conclusion from the weight, from the examples he's given, if you take these these kind of equivocations all together. And, and some, I, I don't want to just be like a nitpicky ass, but, like, I think in the large thing what he's saying about ideological limitations are true but the question is why and if i was to read this and just have this in my head and not try to put a class analysis on what he's saying i would conclude that the new ideology eradicates the old one for whatever reason and that everything gets subsumed to that and that is a hyper that's not just politically determinist that's hyper politically determinist that's almost octetarian I think the, the thing about the party state is that it exists to suppress its political and ideological opponents, right? So you, you get, for example, in America, Toryism is basically exterminated, whereas in you know Canada, it continued to exist because there was not a Whig party state in Canada. Right. Um, 
Right. It was a uh, it was a Whig Tory party state in Canada. Yeah, exactly. But what's what's interesting about this though? I want to go into this. How did America get rid of it? Because we didn't kill that many monarchists after what was the initial insurrection. No, definitely not. It's a very strange transition from Toryism to a kind of like orthodox Whigism as like the dominant ideology that happens in America. Like, I know that John Adams always got shit for kind of looking a little bit too monarchical, but they didn't even have to really like abolish it that much other than banning it in the constitution. Like, it's not like people were, I mean, even when like, for example, someone declared themselves emperor, which has happened in the United States a couple times, everyone just treated them like they were crazy. Like, could Look, it be that- to do with the nature of like, there's loads of land and small peasant getting the hands on the land. I firmly and believe that tradition could be completely different if George Washington decided to be king instead agreed. of agreed. So mm-hmm. like agency matters in history. It just it it's a it's a fact of history and it's just a matter of consigning agency to its proper causal role. Yeah, there's there's a weird uh reconciliation of the the southern elite with Whiggism that happens sort of provisionally up until the Civil War, and then right. it's on a new character afterwards. Because people miss that the Southern slaveholding states were largely monarchist, even though there's just now this popular kind of liberal Maoist thing about how the monarchists were actually more progressive than the bourgeois revolutionaries because they were Oof. more against slaves. And I'm like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense because the slavers in the South were more aligned to the monarchy until the very end. Yes, yes, Britain abolished slavery before the United States did, but it's just not like some of that was actually contingent on what happened in the United States. My smart ass comment, Lexi, earlier about y'all motherfuckers need dialectics. This is a this is an agency contingency theology tension. And I don't know that this is a flaw to McNair here. Like it's flaw in McNair's thinking. I think it's a flaw in the way this is having to be presented and having to be glossed. That it that you yeah. can read this and take the exact wrong conclusion from it. Or maybe maybe I don't know if it's the wrong conclusion, actually. That's the problem. I think it might be slightly clumsily written, this paragraph, this section, and how he's explained it. You know, it's quite idealist in its writing, isn't it? Like, I think what we're choking on here is that McNair is behaving as a political scientist or a legal historian of some kind, and just really just more of like a bourgeois political scientist, you might say. Like, he is a legal historian, but the way that he's writing this is only on the level of politics. And causation is discussed in terms of how it appears in political life. The thing that the Althusserians do right is that they are forced to reconcile with anti-reductionism that like at some point you have to deal with dynamics in a system as it appears. And you have to like observe what behaves like causality within the system, even if you have an idea that there's some deeper force at work. That's, you know greatly complicated by the rest of the bullshit in that tradition and they turn to like butthole psychoanalytic like lacan stuff the point being that like you can talk about these things on this level and you're you're not delivering a whole picture you might say it's a half truth if you need the class analysis to always be there i i understand that but as agency uh does that even exist? I think that's an, it's an interesting <laughs> philosophical question, Puya, that like 
Well, it's that, not philosophical. It's a, I mean, it's, it's not? kind of an empirical question, yeah. No, it's you, not. You, 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 you adjudicated whether agency... Well, empirically, Puya, agency does exist. Unless you exactly. mean rationalistically. What do you mean? Well, like, <laughs> so I experience idea. agency and so do you. Anyway, this is definitely yeah. philosophy. Trust me. I just find that this idea that he's trying to put over here, this idea of the political makeup of a state can be radically quickly changed, is an important, powerful thing, I think, for a unity of the left. If you think about it, for me, this would mean like, let's say you have a socialist revolution in the morning, one type of socialist kind of takes power or whatever, that the new politics would be like, communist state party types versus more anarchist types or say some sortition types at other ends and that that's the the level of the politics now operates i find that like a very uniting thing for the left that's so split into their silly little oh you're an anarchist oh my god i'm a left come you know i just find it like it's something that we should use to unite action amongst leftists but I, i just find it a very powerful idea what do people um, think? Like, of it as an idea, like, I think it's very correct and I think it's very powerful. I think it is an interesting idea in terms of like understanding how, within a political paradigm that exists within a country at a certain point in time, like, I guess, which would be like the intra party politics, there are these like fundamental assumptions that are shared by all parties that are included within political decision making. Like that just seems to track. I think my my biggest problem with this particular section is that like, for example, he talks about the formation of the party of order out of European absolutism. And you could look at the French case there because that's the one that Marx points out. But then he just sort of like says, oh, and look at the French Revolution and Gaulism. And it's like, there's this, the chronology is interwoven in reality, but in this analysis is split up and that completely removes the causal element from what's going on. And I think that creates a lot of confusion for me. France is, is instructive because the bourgeois revolution in France does not get rid of monarchism at all. Why, why is there no like American, and there is now actually, but historically speaking, there's no like American equivalent to Demestre. And I don't, I don't think that that's dealt with. It's just glossed. Like there are, there does seem to be some big differences between some of these developments. And in some cases, they don't abolish all the prior forms, and they, they still exist politically. In other cases, they do. They just like in the United States. You're right. There is no weirdly even like ten years prior to the revolution, most of the revolutionists were monarchists, and then like after that, they're not anymore. It's just not even an open question. I don't think this answers that clearly. Let's read this paragraph. Let me have a go. The idea that political power can only be taken by a party or a party coalition and that the resulting new state is necessarily a party state does not, therefore, at all imply the tyrannous character of the party state created in the Soviet Union and imitated in many other countries. This tyrannous character reflects the decision of the Bolsheviks, A, to create Bonapartist centralism within their party, and B, to use state repression ban on factions, etc., to resist the natural tendency of the party to split within the framework of the common party identification created by the new state form. Behind these decisions, as I argued before, is the fact that the Russian party state created in 1821 was socially based on the peasantry. 
clearly he has a class picture in mind behind these things. Yeah, yeah. it is stated here. I understand that maybe it's an incomplete picture, but is it is it wrong? And that's kind of the level that we should be arguing on. Because, you know, it may be wrong, but I, I, don't, I think that his argument has some very concise sense to it, which is why he leaves out so many details. Like I said earlier, the only, I agree with Kyle, the only case where the details really actually are disconfirming is the French case. All the others were just kind of being penned. But we have to remember that what he means by party is really not the common language view of party or even the Kowski view of party. To I resist- think it's changing what he means all the time. In different yeah, paragraphs. that's maddening, isn't it? Yeah. It's a Marxist tradition, Derek. When he says that the party has a natural tendency to split once it, once it's stated its new framework, you can't be talking about, you're not talking about the same thing as like a, a political party the way we understand it, or even the way Kowski or the Bolsheviks understand it, right? I, I, th- I think he just means in general, like even the Bolsheviks like were, you know, probably should have split, but instead they just banned the concept of difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's also what kills the left SRs and all that too. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the thing is like when he says the Bolsheviks, he's actually talking about like the party state that was led by the Bolsheviks and then which the Bolsheviks subsequently purged of all opposition and including within their own their own political party, as we would understand it in the sort of conventional poli-sci sense. Okay, let's go back. Extreme democracy. Suppose that we fight for extreme democracy, as the CPGP has argued we should and that in our party program, a series of concrete measures to this end. The existing state fails, and some party or coalition of parties based on this aim forms a provisional revolutionary government. We proceed to reconstruct the state order along the lines of extreme democracy. The resulting state will be a party state of extreme Democrats, to the extent that an extreme Democrat coalition takes power. By doing so, it will become a single party and the parties within it, factions. The parliamentarists or the rule of law party, probably composed of several labor, conservative, liberal, etc. factions, will be excluded from political power, just as the Jacobites were excluded from the political power in post-revolutionary Britain, Tories in the post-revolutionary U.S., and monarchists in post-revolutionary France. They will be excluded from political power in the same sense that Islamists are excluded from political power if they do not monopolize it. That is, their constitutional ideas will be subordinated to the extreme democratic regime and marginalized by it. They will quite possibly turn to terrorism and have to be repressed. But the fact that the state is a party state in which the minority which opposes the new state will be excluded from power and, if they resist, repressed, does not in the least imply that the party state cannot have parties or factions within it. A party state as a one-party state complete with a ban on factions, expresses the class interests of petty proprietors, as opposed to the class interests of the proletariat. Suppose instead a single communist party takes power and creates a radical democratic state form. It will be expected that this party, while retaining a common party identification in relation to the revolution and the state, will break up into factions over major policy differences. All of this would be true with the names of and some of the concrete detail change if we replace extreme democracy with all power to the workers' councils and a councilist party or a coalition formed a provisional government, revolutionary government. There we go. <laughs> so if I took McNair's suggestion seriously here, we should not be forming a Marxist party, but an anti-constitutionalist extreme Democrat party. Like he doesn't have anything in here about ceasing the means of production, does he? No. Like, 
so like I assume that he's not saying we should just try and be sweet Switzerland Swiss Canton or something or Vermont I, I presume that he's just taking that as a yeah there is given. a section in there that I think is quite important I think if you go up a bit it we can go back to it to the extent that an extreme Democrat coalition takes power, by doing so, it will become a single party and the parties within it factions and the parties there are in scare quotes. So I think the picture here is of having a revolutionary agenda such as extreme democracy and that bring together a coalition of interested revolutionary parties in the very like conventional sense. And in the struggle, they will become a single party in the sense that McNair has been talking about the party state. Um, because they have a fidelity to like a revolutionary idea, right? Yes, exactly. But it's like a singular revolutionary idea. It's not like a Marxist program. And that's actually kind of different than the way I've seen a lot of people who read this book mm. go. Yeah. And this is interesting because it's like very specifically addressing the program of the CPGB at the time this was written, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. And and very and very much actually it is it's very specific to England. Like he's not kidding when he says that. Oh, totally. This is this is all very much read through a, a British or English lens. Right. Because like if we were doing an anti-formation for extreme democracy, we would be opposing something different than the unwritten constitution and the monarchy. We would be opposing the constitution itself. Right. And you're also right that okay. except right now when things are breaking down in America, like that, that normally is super duper, uber, uber heretical, not even Marxists do it. Yeah. Which is, that's where you see the, the contours of the actual like existing party. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um, the implicit kind of constitutional regime of the American state. Like, it's a kind of party like so we need to make sense we want to we want we want to sum it up it's when donald trump said in front of the senate or whatever you know <laughs> we will never be a socialist we'll always be a capitalist country and everybody stood the fuck up yeah that's true yeah so now, that's it mm -hmm. there so it is leads to the end except bernie sanders who was he was bending over you know probably because he had a bad back yeah, except Bernie Sanders, who's who is bending over and it's just you know, it's like we have to have capitalism light. He was trying to get a Zimmer frame up. <laughs> but you know, he's loyal to the Constitution. Nothing he new is. about what he's saying is is disloyal to the Constitution, and that's how the left normally is. Like, I mean, in, the, in the United States, I think you can also see these like sort of contours of like what McNair is talking about in the British case with all of the sort of like empty controversy about uh, Corbyn not being uh, deferential to the monarchy. Yeah. <laughs> they goddamn hate that here. Like, they hate it. Like, anytime, like, he won't go to this state function or that one, or he won't, like, sing the national anthem, the press goes absolutely bananas. <laughs> it's hilarious. That's, that's, that's an awesome power as a propagandist. It is. And the weird, you know, the weird thing is, I think like uh, Republicans in, in Britain, I think it's nearly 50-50. It's something crazy. It's not like 1% of people. It's really quite normal. But it, it's, un, it's unspeakable to be in Parliament or anything and not fucking toe that line. Yeah, that's wow. the peculiarity of British class society, right? That 
the it's still semi-feudal. So the divorce between the ruling class and the population at large is just extreme. And like what, you know, when he's talking about how the Whigs were basically suppressed in Britain, I think he's talking about the like, uh, what do you call them? The uh, nonconformists and like the people who went on to be like the sort of like Whiggish socialists at Cambridge, like the, you know, like Keynes and that group of people. I guess you wouldn't technically include Keynes, but yeah, like uh, that kind of radical liberal socialist tradition you find at the fringes of British society, which has no actual like purchase in the official politics of the country. I just looked up the stats on it in England. It's not as high as I thought, but it's like it's eighteen uh, percent are Republicans, seventy-five percent are Royalists, and probably a okay. huge amount of them are soft Royalists. You know. Like, oh, they're good for tourism or some bullshit. Right. So I, I, I had a conversation with Douglas Lane about this the other day, and I won't give the specifics because it involves people and controversies. One of the things I said is the more you guys talk about what is imaginable, the more you give in to the current, not just capitalists, but the entire political order, because everything that you believe now is based on the system that currently exists now. And basically, you're thus, thus, if it is imaginable to you under the current system, you actually legitimize that system so talking about it being revolutionary in any way is kind of silly i wasn't actually making like the anti-parliamentary um, anti-democratic point that a lot of people make or like the mls make or whatever what i was just saying is like everything that seems imaginable to us now is because it's within the current constitutional order or our uh, political order are in in the in capitalist order too but i guess in, in the will and mcnor would say it's in the current party order now Am I misunderstanding? So I say that because I what I would use for party here is movement, but he uses that differently. So I'm not quite sure. There, there's an important distinction there because when he talks about the transition to the party state, the party comes after it, it's 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 uh, it's post the struggle. It's pr a product of the struggle. So um, it's the concretizing of the movement, even if it's not concretizing yes, in yes. a singular political party. Got it. Yeah, yeah. No, but well, it does seem to me like we I, have to be we have to be both more and less radical than at the same time in regards to this stuff if we took this seriously, right? Meaning what? Well, I mean, for example, like this pro-democratic, pro just not leading an insurrection and killing everybody's way to power <laughs> stance that Manier is taking here, but like you do have to radically transgress some element of the current order. And it's it may even have to be simpler than like overthrowing capitalism because we can't even agree on what that means. Yeah, I, I think that's 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 fair. I think that the movement would probably not agree precisely on what that means, and you would see that debated at the factions or the the quote unquote parties that fall out of the party state, right? Yeah, it's like something that has to be settled in the in the mix, right? But we'd all have to agree that this one element's fucked up. Yeah, you have to have enough core commonalities. In the French Revolution, right, it's the abolition of privilege, right? Like, that's the thing. That's the program you get you get kicked off on. Yeah, like the, the American Revolution is probably getting rid of the British or the Irish one or, you know, take or pick the Chinese, probably getting rid of the Japanese. Yeah. Well, it seems like this is, it seems like one of the reasons why nationalist revolutions would be easier to do is this would be easier to form around. And right, and that's why this is in some loose sense with the ML argument that all the like 
national liberation revolutions are, are positive would be true and in so much that they're easier to be revolutionary because it has a clearer agenda than which to build a coalition around but those party states would be nebulous as fuck well and mcnair would would discount them as being all that valuable because he would associate them with a, a revolution of the petty proprietors right yeah Ugh. I'm not sure why he says that that it's a class interest of petty proprietors. It's an old Marxist argument about like how peasant revolutions tend to go, where it's probably like in the Marxist tradition, it's usually like thought of in terms of classical like uh, Chinese civilization and the way that like there was a concept of the mandate of heaven, where you you know you'd have a a dynastic emperor and sometimes they would just basically in so many words like lose the mandate of heaven lose the favor of the gods and they would have to be replaced by a new dynastic emperor that has the mandate of heaven and that is the way that those revolutions would tend to go that you know there would be an uprising and it wouldn't really replace the form it would replace the person at the top. Right. And Let's have it would correct king. the system. It would correct the system. The idea was having a better king as opposed to like just getting right, rid of right. the fucking emperor altogether. And there's a historical you know, element of that with like most peasant revolutions do end up recapitulating the power structures just kind of nicer. I mean, in the medieval period. Partly, and the reason why it's considered petty proprietor, and he's saying petty proprietor here to not just to say like, oh, those dirty peasants. He's also like, petit bourgeois and stuff would be this way too. Is that yeah. you, you have something at stake in the current society, so you don't really want to understand it. You just want it to be nicer. Yeah, you need, you need somebody who can kind of act as an agent to redistribute property, right? Because you're atomized, right? Um, you're either like I guess in the case of the peasantry, it's like either you're atomized into like small collectives, or you form a mob with no capacities for self-rulership, right? Um, like what you know, what you see happen sometimes in peasant revolutions is that they will essentially promote a like even if it's like the most radical, and you have a peasant ascending to the throne, it's like somebody is promoted out of that group to be the person who's going to do the redistribution. And, you know, I can, I can understand this argument sort of personally as like a worker who is like very atomized. And whenever I look at politics, it's like, I feel like I have no power in myself or the people around me to affect what is going on. But if some, you know, heroic uh, redistributor, like, a, you know, like a Bernie figure or something comes up and then, then there's like this wellspring of support that happens because it's like, oh, there's an agent. Or even a Donald figure, uh, I mean, a, a Donald Trump figure, which, by the way, that uh, when we talk about the moods of anti-politics and stuff, that's one of the things that I think is missed is a lot of anti-political moods happen in peasantry, but they end up just recapitulating the same power structures with a different head that more represents what may or may not be viewed as their immediate interest. And that's not really revolutionary. That's recapitulatory. Yeah, but um, why kinda... didn't he say the Russian party state was based on the peasantry? He says he argued it before. And I only came in. Well, I mean, uh, it's just objectively true that that the Soviets actually have more peasants than proletarian in them because the like at the state of development the Russian the Russian Revolution happened at like only like 
12 to 14 percent of the population was proletarianized like most of the country was still peasantry yeah but in like the basis of power of the soviets you know the probably the proportion of workers was different than in the total country well, I, I don't know that I think one of the one of the things that he points out early on, though, is both in the SP day and the Bolsheviks, the, the actual portion of workers was always lower than people were comfortable with. They, while like the membership was mostly workers, it was a much smaller percentage of workers. Um, and usually the workers were actually in the reformist wings. And that 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 you know, like he just admits that flat out, which is a historical. I've seen several books that kind of just take the demographic, like what we know about demographics and voting patterns and project it back and say that most likely seems to be the case. Well, I, I know like you're talking about replacing the head of the government. I'd like if you could take off Donald Trump's head and maybe like put like, I don't know, like a piano there instead. That'd be good. Or maybe like a, yes, a curtain, a set of curtains just neatly folded. Something like that. Yeah, we've, like, gone, we've gone past revolutionary politics to surrealism. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening, and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, and Swampside Chats. Thank you.